a hand. Morning. Great to hear see all your beautiful faces. Good thing about preaching is that we're preaching a family here, so uh, if it sucks, it's all good. <laughs> um, so if you don't know me, uh, I'm Sarah. Uh, I'm uh, wife to Ian and mum to Nathan, Samuel and Ben. Uh, and I'm the Connections Pastor and Operations Manager here at Awaken. So if you want to get connected into Awaken, I'm your guy. Uh, and if you want to know anything operationally, if there's anything, um, emails are often coming from me, uh, that sort of thing. Cool. <sighs> Not nervous. Nervous and excitement feel the same. Uh, so, yeah, it's all good. Uh, <laughs> so we've been traveling through the Disrupt the System series uh, at the moment. And um, for me, it's been really challenging to hear different voices um, on what it means to be apprentices of Jesus. Uh, so this morning, it's a real privilege to share the spiritual practice that has been most transformative, transformative for me. Uh, I simultaneously love it and hate it. <laughs> um, if you've been ever really digging into any of the spiritual practices, often they can feel really painful and uncomfortable, but that's how we get growth. So this morning I'm sharing on solitude. Um, I think for some of the more introverted people, solitude might not be that tough, possibly. It might be a bit of a downstream uh, spiritual practice for you. For those of us that are the type A, busy personalities, addicted to busy, solitude can be... <laughs> See your Enneagram type three. Um, solitude can be upstream. It can be a bit of a slog, but we need it. Because it is hard, we need it. Uh, and the, I do see the irony that it's not our more introverted Pastor Michael who is sharing on solitude. It is, uh, yeah, the busy type A personality. Um, I haven't arrived with solitude. I've been using this practice for years, and I still haven't arrived at um, some days I come out of my time of solitude with God not having heard from him, but not because he hasn't said anything, because I haven't been able to quiet down enough to listen. So I'm still learning, um, so I want to be transparent about that from the start. So Ronald Rollhauser said, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. There are so many voices out there that are distracting us, and there are voices that are calling us back to rest and to unhurry, but we're not very good at listening to them. John Mark Comer says in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which I encourage you all to read, um, and is kind of the basis for this series. He says, the noise of this world has made us deaf to the voice of God, drowning out the one input that we need the most. Oh, um, Andrew, can we get the slide up for questions? If there are any questions through uh, today's message, you can text them through. Cool. Uh, so lockdown was a fantastic opportunity for some to quiet down, to rest. Uh, my husband loved it. He hadn't really rested in 20 years of owning his own business, um, and he really loved that break. I did not. <laughs> um, I came out of that season feeling really weary. I had loads of physical rest, uh, but my soul hadn't rested in solitude. Um, I, might, I have so many children at home, there was actually no place to hide for long enough to really participate in solitude. It wasn't until I came out of lockdown that I was able to resume all my rhythms and the physical space that I needed to really dissect with God. I become really aware that there are physical spaces I can go to to rest in God, but I don't always carry that with me internally. I'm starting to really pay attention to other apprentices of Jesus who are further along the journey than I am that carry that sense of rest and peace with them in the middle of the hustle. 
And we heard from Annette last week, and that is definitely an example of someone who carries in the middle of the hustle that sense of peace. Jesus says to us in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Are you tired, worn out, burned out by religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So Jesus invites us to be apprentices to a different way of living. The word follow, uh, the original word is rodaf, and it's not passive. It means to chase down, to be hot on the heels, and that's what it is. To be an apprentice of Jesus is to be hot on his heels, chasing him down. So this morning, can we make it really clear that solitude is not isolation? Solitude is engagement. Isolation is escape. Solitude is moving forward. Isolation is running away. Solitude is safety. Isolation is danger. In loneliness and isolation, there is an inner emptiness, but in solitude, there is an inner fulfillment. Isolation is to cut off from the life source, but solitude is breathing in the life source so that we can get back into the fight. Solitude is when you set aside time to feed and nourish your soul, to be alone with God, but isolation is what you crave when you neglect solitude. So Jesus pulled away into solitude regularly. He had a rhythm of engaging and resting, engaging and listening. It's how he started his ministry, and it's how he continued his ministry. And often, straight after a time of solitude with Jesus, you'd see that something really big would happen. There was a rhythm to it. So the life of Jesus illustrates that solitude isn't optional. It's not something nice that Jesus did that we can't fit into our busy lives. If we want to avoid spiritual oblivion, solitude is essential. So Ruth Haley Barton and the Invitation of, to Solitude and Silence, another really good book that if solitude is, is a practice that you think you should embark on, um, it's a really helpful, beautiful book. And she says, the invitation to solitude and silence is just that. It is an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of relationship with the one who waits just outside the noise and busyness of our lives. It is an invitation to communication and communion with the one who is always present even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. It is an invitation to the adventure of spiritual transformation in the deepest places of our being, an adventure that will result in greater freedom and authenticity and surrender to God than we have yet experienced. So solitude isn't just mindfulness with a bit of Jesus on the side. It's a place of encounter. It's a place that is a place of change and transformation. When our outward distractions disappear, we find that the greatest distraction is often our own busy mind and our selfish heart. Anthony the Great, one of the early Desert Fathers said, the man who abides in solitude is quiet, and is quiet, is delivered from fighting three battles, those of hearing, speech, and sight. Then he'll have but one battle to fight, the battle of the heart. But often we don't want to go to solitude and deal with their junk, to sit in the quiet, but it's already there under the surface of our life. Regardless of the distraction, it's still there. If we don't deal with it in a healthy way, it'll leak out in an unhealthy way, often onto the ones we love most. 
So is there a safe place to deal with my crap? <laughs> yes. And that's intentional time with God alone. To take it all out, all the junk out, and to put it on the table with him. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We have to go through the process. We can't just skip to the good part. It's always a journey. Uh, again, Ruth Haley Barton, she describes how we end up like jars of river water, all shaken up and cloudy. And I was going to bring a jar of river water. I had, um, with Benji, we had gone to the river and gotten some water from the river. Um, and it was my big plan. I was like, oh, we'll shake it up, we'll put it here, and then by the end of the sermon, it'll all be settled. It'll be a great illustration. It takes way longer than 20 minutes for <laughs> river water to settle, which is kind of like solitude. It takes a lot longer than what we experience. So she says, when we sit quietly in God's presence, the sediment that is swirling in our souls begins to settle. We don't have to do anything but show up and trust the spiritual law of gravity that says, be still and the knowing will come. And the Passion Translation words, Psalm 46, this way, it says, surrender your anxiety, be silent and stop striving and you will see that I am God. And if you're anything like me, it can take a long time for those swirling waters to settle. God's not hassled by time, he's in no hurry, and he will wait for us to just become still. And we can eliminate the noise in the environment around us, but how much harder is it to settle the noise in, inside of us? Um, there's this great quote, and it's long, and I apologize for that, but there was so much good in it that I couldn't uh, miss any of it out. So Henry Nowen, 40 years ago, he wrote, solitude is not a private therapeutic place, Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, just me. Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. It is in this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. And nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, my distractions, so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. But that is not all. As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. I give long, hostile speeches to my enemies and dream lustful dreams in which they are wealthy, influential, and very attractive, or poor, ugly, and in need of immediate consolation. Thus again, I try to run from the dark abyss of my nothingness and restore my false self in all its vain glory. The wisdom of the des desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. So why on earth would we want to stick with solitude? The dark abyss faced with their nothingness. Gross. <laughs> Let's be real. Dallas Willard observes that we cannot survive solitude unless we cling to Jesus there. But in solitude, what we find of Jesus allows us to come back into society and freedom. Um, so this morning we're going to read from the Bible. Uh, we will have the verses on the screen. Sorry, poor Ayla this morning. Ayla's like, there's 13 slides. So, <laughs> um, so I just want to share a story in the Bible that um, 
is yeah, a really great illustration of solitude. And um, to catch you guys up to the story, so it's about Elijah in 1 Kings. So he was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel while the kingdom was descending towards destruction. He had announced in 1 Kings 17 that there would be no rain for three years. Drought ensued. Um, God provided for Elijah time and time again. And the drought came to a dramatic end after on Mount Carmel, Elijah faces off with 400 prophets of Baal, a bit of a my God's bigger than your God kind of competition. Um, And Elijah ends up with a supernatural victory, and then he kills all 400 prophets. And then he prayed, and then it rained. So this is where we pick up the story. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all of the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Elijah was not afraid. Oh, sorry, Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Bathsheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. And then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. And then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead of you will be too much. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God where he came to a cave where he spent the night. And then the Lord said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, went out, and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And then the Lord told him, Go back the same way you came, and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, anoint Hazel, the king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. Then anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, in the town of Abel-Hola, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazel will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I'll preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. Sorry, I need long. <laughs> All right, so Elijah, he was desperate. He was at the end of himself. He was depleted not just spiritually and emotionally, but physically. He was done, he quit, he was out. And if you're a parent, sometimes you know that to solve a meltdown with your child is to feed them. 
to replenish them physically before you can rationalize with them emotionally. This is also true with adults. Um, the word hangry is now in the Oxford Dictionary. Um, <laughs> I checked. Um, and I once heard that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to have a nap. <laughs> so, so God recharged Elijah physically first. Elijah then took 40 days to travel a distance that should only take 11 days to travel. So don't miss that. That's just like us. So often we take the long way to our own healing. We refuse to slow down. We refuse to show up. We refuse to trust that Father God actually wants to take care of us. So instead we avoid, we distract, and we ignore. But Elijah eventually, after 40 days, makes it to the mountain of God. Um, and in the Bible, encounters with God often happen in mountains. So this is significant. God speaks to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's been 40 days, but still there's that jumble of emotions happening inside of Elijah. He's a bit more articulate than he was 40 days ago. He's able to say what he's upset about, which is important. He's naming what's happening inside of him. And it reveals something, a lie. I am the only one left. I think those lies are better out than in. Shame loves to keep our lies that we tell ourselves hidden. But when we can confess a lie to God, it's like getting on his operating table and letting him do some fixing. In the book, The Cry of the Soul, Dan Allender and Trempa Longman tell us, in neglecting our intense emotions, we're false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. Because I tell you, I do not love the word vulnerability. That is a really ugly word for me. Um, but far out, when I'm vulnerable with God, that's where he brings healing. Uh, so last year for me was personally a tough year. Um, but I know that for so many here, there was um, you know, ones that you know, went through considerable trauma um, and grief. So, but this is my story uh, that I'm sharing up here. So I had been in emotional pain for quite a bit of time. And I'd been distracting myself. I had made other people my bad guy. And I had numbed. Um, by September last year, we had our conference, which was so good, but the lead-up wasn't smooth by any stretch of the imagination. And by the time we reached conference, I hadn't realised it, but I was running in overtime. I was in the red. Um, our conference was so good. I was so proud of our volunteers um, who made it run like a million bucks. Ian told me off when I shared with him this part of my sermon at home, because I was like, my volunteers made it. And he was like, they're not your volunteers, they're the church's volunteers. I'm like, no, but... <laughs> They're mine, because I love them. Um, <laughs> um, we reaped the fruit of all the hard work that we'd put into conference. We'd been declaring breakthrough in the lead up to conference, and it felt like that's what we saw during those few days. But 36 hours into conference, there was this gap between the afternoon session and the night session, and the building had fallen empty. Everyone had scattered for food and for rest, and there was quiet. And of course, I'd been trying to outrun quiet for months. And in that quiet, my emotions finally caught up with me. My value, my belonging, my security, my worth were suddenly all out on the table for questioning. I felt like I was about to drown in sorrow and doubt. Such raw emotion is super uncomfortable for me. Um, and I think that's why so many, uh, myself included, we try to dodge it, bury and distance ourselves from it. So I bailed out of church because I knew it was about to get ugly and I sat in my car for almost an hour. Whilst like Elijah, I laid it all out 
before God, all that I'd done, all that I'd sacrificed, all of my loneliness, and I questioned, would it always be this way, and was the pain worth it? I told God I was done, D-O-N-E, done. I didn't want to go back and finish conference, but I did. I wasn't able to sidestep my responsibility so easily. Mopped up my tears, I parked my emotions, picked up dinner for my volunteers, and I finished conference, but I was still nursing a sizable wound. There was still healing to be done, and I needed rest. So I had a journey to walk, but like Elijah, it would take me much longer than the direct route. There was truth my soul needed reminded of. I saw my counsellor, there were relationships I needed to restore, and I took a week, off to, a week off after conference. I went to the wilderness in Bacargill for a week. <laughs> um, my counsellor that week gave me this advice. She said, just because I feel a certain way doesn't make it so. This feeling is on accurate reflection of reality. This feeling might be lying to me. The very emotions that we might be trying to outrun might not even be telling us the truth. Fear and shame cloud our vision. But we need to be willing to engage with these strong emotions and what they might be indicating to us. How can we replace them with truth if we keep them buried? And God asks, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, I'm the only one left. Our emotions are often a really foggy lens to be looking through. And instead of just letting them be indicators, we let them be dictators of our behavior. So as I worked through the aftermath of that crash, I realized that I'd assumed a whole heap about other people's intentions. I'd held people to some pretty unfair high expectations, and I had not extended grace where I had demanded grace for myself. I was also entirely blind that I was surrounded by some incredible people, especially during that week of conference, that had I been brave enough to say help, they would have been there for me and had my back. So it's been a really long, meandering walk to the mountain, there was no instant healing. There was no spray and walk away solutions. <laughs> Dan Allender says our spiritual journey must lead through the desert or else our healing will be the product of our own will and wisdom. The desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. And the desert, we trust God or die. So how do we deal with that tension that it's in the quiet that we hear these painful voices that question our security, our belonging, and our significance? That it's in the silence when the bananas in the monkey tree go mental. But that's also where we get our healing. It's also where we become so empty that only God can heal us. So Elijah is camped out on the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. This mountain was at the center of the dramatic narrative in Exodus 19, with the Ten Commandments, which included thunder and lightning, smoke and earthquakes. That's how God showed up. But this time, God was not in the mighty wind, he wasn't in the earthquake, and he wasn't in the fire. It was just weeks prior that Elijah had seen God send down fire at Mount Carmel, but not this time. This time God was in the whisper. It can take time for us to settle to hear God in the whisper, to quiet down our internal dialogue and finally listen. For me, this doesn't often happen in the time where I'm focusing on prayer and on reading the Bible. This sort of deep transformation takes much longer. So God's in the small whisper, and he asks again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And why does God ask again? I love it that he'll just keep asking, what are you doing here? And he replaces the lie with truth. Elijah is not the only one. And he gives Elijah purpose to re-enter the race. 
And in this series, we've heard for transformation to be truly formative, it must be deeply disruptive. It's supposed to be an uncomfortable journey. Um, so a couple of months ago, there was a gap in the preaching roster, and Michael suggested a name, and I was like, yeah, cool. Totally strategic move. Want to hear from them. Hear from them. Opportunity for church to hear from their heart. So it was totally logical. It was a no-brainer. This person's heard the story, so it's okay. I can share it. <laughs> um, totally logical, no-brainer. But my heart went, what about me? Oh, yuck. There was a really uncomfortable feeling, and I wanted to distance myself from it really quickly. Why on earth is there disconnect between my head and my heart? Why was there a disconnect between my emotions and my values? It's not who I wanted to be. To recur the words of my counsellor, just because I feel a certain way doesn't make it so. This feeling is not an accurate reflection of reality. This feeling might be lying to me. Brene Brown talks about how we make up stories in our head. How often have I got stuck there? Distressed and upset, trying to figure it all out myself, and usually being so wrong about what is going on. So I did the only thing I could and took my mess to God. I went to meet him at the mountain, so to speak. Asked him what on earth was going on with my emotions. Why was there this disconnect? My echoes of being overlooked and not being enough bubbled to the surface. And God let me get it all out, all out of my system. He's like, what are you doing here, Sarah? And he's so gracious because we can bring our stuff to God. He'll let us get it all out. He's got really broad shoulders. He will listen to our junk. And it was gross. Um, and I think there's a reason why we come to God alone. I'm not sure that our egos could handle like other human beings, you know, healing the hearing the junk that we tell ourselves. So, in turn, over a period of days, God began to speak. And when it was whispers, He wasn't in any big thing. It was whispers. Sometimes it was a memory, sometimes it was a scripture, once it was a line that Michael had said in the sermon, sometimes it was Holy Spirit and worship, or an encouraging word in a prayer from someone else. There was no wind, no earthquake, no fire, just whispers. He reminded me of the truth of who I am, and he reminded me that I'm supposed to equip others to make a way for them. He reminded me that this stage is a lousy goal. If anyone has the stage as a goal, it is a lousy goal. <laughs> His attention is on this valley, and I had been distracted, thinking way too small in my insecurity. The stage is not where I'll ever have the most effectiveness. One-on-one -on -one with people, that's where I can be his hands and his feet, I can be his arms, I can be his ears, I can be his voice. So when we come to the mountain of God, he can transform us, he can unravel us, he can break apart the lies, and he can restore us to our purpose. So Elijah had been thinking too small, I am the only one, but he had a legacy coming in Elisha. There were 7,000 others also who had remained faithful to God. If we choose to build a kingdom on our insecurities and pain, instead of participating in the kingdom of Jesus, we are robbing the next generation. Elijah could have stayed and died under the broom tree. He could have chosen to walk away from an encounter with God. He could have chosen to not listen to the whisper. He could have skipped out on making Elisha an apprentice. Elisha went on to do many similar things to Elijah, but he had a double portion. The miracles were double that of Elijah. So what is it that we're holding back for ourselves out of our own insecurity and our brokenness that was never meant to be for us, but was supposed to pass through us? Who loses out when we shy away from our healing? Henry Nowen says, the solitude is the furnace Solitude is the furnace of transformation. 
It is the place of great struggle and great encounter. It is the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. And then God sent Elijah to Damascus via the way he came. Just a few weeks ago, Chantal shared about Paul on the road to Damascus, speaking of how God wants to demask us. There are huge parallels between the two passages. There's no coincidence that Paul went into the wilderness after his encounter with Jesus at Damascus. And I found God has had to do this time and time again, lead me back the way I came, to show me his view and his truth of the situation. On my way to the mountain, I'm often exhausted, frustrated, and straight up self-absorbed with my pain. But on my way back, I have his fresh perspective and grace. Where I might have felt abandoned, alone, and rejected, God shows me that my belonging and my security have never been up for question. My belonging is not conditional. God sends us out with encouragement. You are not alone. You just couldn't see it. What was a cry is now a blessing. God is at work, and this is his perspective. The goal of solitude is I know who I am, and I know how God sees me. And so have you been listening to the wrong narrative? Have you been agreeing with voices that are not God? Voices of shame and condemnation and fear. That's not his voice. You are loved, known, and seen by God, and that's what is true. When we allow ourselves to be in the presence of God, we begin to see things as they really are. And that includes us. Should we pause? Nissan, who's got a Nissan KJG889? Please move your car. Awesome. Thank you. When we allow ourselves to be in the presence of God, we begin to see things as they are, and that includes us. But we need to come to the mountain. At first, solitude might feel like a place of emptiness. We may feel shame, fear punishment for the parts of ourselves that we've now exposed that we'd previously hidden. But if we stay in the moment like Elijah did, eventually we'll notice that the silence is different and it's full of the presence of God. Like Elijah, we might find in this space that God is not scolding us. He's not telling us to pull our socks up and to get on with it. He gives us his peace. So as we wrap up this morning, uh, in the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, he lists some of the consequences of not practicing solitude. We can feel distant from God and end up living off someone else's spirituality via a podcast feed or a book or a one-page devotional we read before we rush off to work. We feel distant from ourselves. We lose sight of our identities and callings. We get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. We feel an undercurrent of anxiety that really, if ever, goes away. The sense that we're always behind, playing catch-up, we're never done. Yeah, worship team, you guys can. Thank you. Then we get exhausted. We lag through our days, our low-grade energy on loan from our stimulants of choice. Even when we catch up on our sleep, we, have a deeper, we f- feel a deeper kind of tired. We turn to our escapes of choice. We run out of energy to do what's actually life-giving for our souls. For example, prayer. And instead we turn to a cheap fix. Another glass of wine, a new show streaming online, our social media feeds, porn. We come easy prey for the tempter just furthering our sense of distance from God and our souls. And then emotional unhealth sets in. We start living from the surface of our lives, not the core. We're reactionary. The smallest thing is a trigger. 
the throwaway line from a boss, a snide comment from a coworker, a suggestion from a spouse or a flatmate. It doesn't take much. We lose our tempers, we bark at our kids, we get defensive, sulk, feel angry or sad, often both. But on the flip side, John Mark Comer gives us an alternative. We find our quiet places, a park down the street, a reading nook at home, a morning routine that starts before the little ones are awake, and we come away. We take our time, maybe it's not a full hour, but we're there long enough to decompress from the noise and the traffic and the stress and the non-stop stimulation of modern society. Sometimes all we need is a few minutes. Other times an hour is not enough. Other times we gratefully take any time we can get. Legit, sometimes it's just in my car with no music on and God's like, got ya. <laughs> we slow down, we breathe, we come back to the present and we start to feel at first, it's the whole range of human emotions, not just joy and gratitude and celebration and restfulness, but also sadness and doubt and anger and anxiety. And often, it's all the lousy emotions first. It's just how it goes. We face the good, the bad, and the downright ugly in our hearts, our worry, our depression, our hope, our desire for God, our lack of desire for God, a sense of God's presence, a sense of his absence, our fantasies, our realities, all the lies we believe, the truth we come home to, our motivations, our addictions, the coping mechanisms we reach for just to make it through the week. All is exposed and painfully so. But rather than leaking on those we love most, it's exposed in the safe place of the Father's love and voice. And we can sense his voice cut through the cacophony of all other voices which slowly fade to the deafening roar of silence. And in that silence we hear God speak his love over us speak our identities and callings into being. We get his perspective on our life um, and our humble good places in it. And we come to a place of freedom. Our failures slowly lose their power over us, as do our successes. We get out from under the tyranny of other people's opinions, their disapproval or approval of us, free to just be us, the mixed bag that we are. Nothing more than children with our father, adopted into love, free to be in the process, yet to arrive, and that's okay. In silence and solitude, our souls finally come home. So it's like this, we have two options. We can neglect this practice and make excuses and get sucked into the rat race and face emotional unhealth at best and spiritual oblivion at worst. Or we can, practice in this, we can engage with this ancient practice and experience the life of Jesus. If Elijah's story tells us anything, it's that solitude and silence offer no quick fixes, but it gets us on God's operating table. And as we come into the community, we do have questions, but I think we will do live video during the week to answer all the questions. Um, if there are questions, check them through. <laughs> I preach too long, sorry guys. But as we come into um, worship and communion today, there will be communion over here. Um, I encourage you to just be. Um, a prayer often for me has been from Psalm 139, um, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So, Father, I just want to thank you that you give us solitude. And even though sometimes we come dragging our feet, that is a place of restoration and it is a place of healing. It is the place where we hear who we truly are and how you see us. And I just pray, Father, that this week that um, you would just open pockets of time 
where we can come and meet with you and get realigned with you, Father. Um, yeah, I just thank you, Lord, that you just want to be with us, that you call us to be hot on your heels to chase you. Um, but at the same time, you're chasing us in that wonderful paradox. Um, I just thank you for all you are.